Galatians chapter 1, we're going to take it up from verse 11. Paul's writing to the churches in Galatia, most likely the churches that he established on his first missionary journey. And as he went through and established those churches, he was preaching a gospel of grace and not only salvation by grace, but also sanctification by grace. In other words, God's working in our lives by his power, just like we were saved by his power. In the first half, uh, first half of chapter one, we saw Paul's greeting to the church, but then we also saw his rebuke to the church, didn't we? He marveled that they so turned away from uh, that gospel that he had delivered to them. And again, the key thing is it's that gospel of grace, that God's extended his favor. And there had come in a message of works. And that's like the issue what Paul is combating here in uh, the beginning of this letter. And so in doing so, we're getting kind of a, an autobiographical sketch of his life to basically show that the message, the, the gospel that he was communicating he received it directly from the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's what he's been communicating to them, not something that he's put his own twist on or that he's learned from somebody else. And so we come into that section now, beginning from verse 11 of chapter 1. So we're going to go ahead and read through the rest of the chapter, Galatians chapter 1, starting from verse 11. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed, before God, I do not lie. Afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but they were hearing only he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God in me. So here in this sketch, which is really kind of cool, we get kind of a background on Paul's life. He, he comes out saying, again in verse 11, I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. I didn't receive it from man. I wasn't taught it by man, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the message he received from Jesus. And it's much like what he said in the opening verse, isn't it? That his commission into the ministry as an apostle wasn't from man. It wasn't an ordination of some church. It was Jesus commissioning him. Look again at verse 1 of chapter 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ. And so, <clears throat> Jesus is the one who 
commissioned him. Jesus is the one who gave him the message to bring to them. And that's what he wants to, to put down the gospel specifically. The good news is what he'd receive from Jesus. Now, when we talk about the gospel or we talk about the good news, oftentimes we'll talk about our reception of the gospel, that there's nothing we can do to earn it, but it's a gift that God extends to us. And we oftentimes will go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, which says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. This is the, the presentation of the gospel and the how it's received. It's presented as the grace of God, his favor that we could not earn, and we receive it by faith, not by the works of the law or by being good enough. So that's the, the how part of it. But the what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it starts off by, by Paul saying, I declare to you the gospel. And then when he gets to verses 3 and 4, we get the gospel in a nutshell, what it is. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. Two major elements of the gospel there. The first one is that Jesus died for our sins. It's clear as to why he died. He didn't die for anything he did himself, but he died for us. And that speaks of a substitutionary death. He died where we should die. And this, I think, you guys, brings a lot of the logic into the gospel. As far as God's justice goes, it's life for life. The Bible tells us that we've all sinned, we've all broken God's laws, we've all broken his commandment. And it tells us the consequences of sin. It tells us that the wages of sin, what we've earned, if you will, by being a sinner, is death. And so there needs to be an atonement. There needs to be a way to get rid of the sin issue that's in our life. And that, again, is the reason that Jesus came. He came to bear our judgment. Where I deserve to die, he died in my place. And having bore that judgment, he then can offer forgiveness. That's the, the grace aspect of it, isn't it? It's, it's offering something I don't deserve, and then I have the opportunity to receive that or to reject it. So that's that's the gospel. Well, it's the first half, the one side of the coin of the gospel, isn't it? That Jesus died for our sins. But the other side of that coin is that he rose the third day, never to die again. See, the resurrection is huge. Christianity rises or fall on the resurrection. We don't serve a dead savior. And think about that just for a moment. You know, if Jesus died for our sins, but he remained dead, where would the hope be? that we would have for anything beyond this life. But because he lives, we know that we will live as well. In John 11, 25 and 26, Jesus said to Martha, sister of Mary, she, he said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And then the question, which I think is applicable to all of us, do you believe this? Notice the word believe. It's key in this. Jesus is the resurrection. He's the whole reason that there's going to be life. And when we put our faith and our trust in him, when we believe in him, then we can be forgiven and we can have life. 
And so that's the key element of the gospel. And it's all based upon the grace of God, nothing we could do to merit it or earn it. And I know I keep coming back to this over and over again. You know why I do? Because the Bible keeps coming back to it over and over again, because we are so prone to try and work and to be good enough. It's just wired within us. I mean, how many of you feel like, oh, I could have done more. I should have been better. And, you know, all of that thing. We got to come back to the grace. That's why I mentioned earlier about the passage in Peter where it says that we, we, rest, we rest our hope fully upon the grace that is to be revealed. I mean, that's reality. That's our, our only hope is God's favor extended to us in salvation and also, like I mentioned, in sanctification as we'll see going through this, living the Christian life. You know, it's all about what he does, his empowering, his enabling. And so Paul it starts this out by saying that the message that I have, I wasn't taught it. I haven't embellished on it. I received it directly from Jesus Christ. And we get a little bit of the background of Paul in this section here. He was born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but he was schooled in Jerusalem. So the eastern, what would be the eastern side of Turkey is where he was born. And we read in Acts 22, where Paul said, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, referring to Jerusalem, at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God as you all are today. And so we see that he is born in a Gentile territory, but he is schooled at the feet of the greatest rabbi of the day, Gamaliel. Gamaliel was his mentor. Paul learned and sat at his feet. And Paul was part of the religious leadership, if you will, of Israel. In Philippians chapter 3, where Paul is stating on his human attainments, Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh... I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee. So even from his birth, his parents are making sure he's doing all of the Jewish laws. He's circumcised on the eighth day, the day that you were supposed to be circumcised on. He's from the stock of Israel. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin, where the first king of Israel came from, who is also named, by the way, Saul. So he's got a good background. But he says concerning the law of Pharisee. And the Pharisees were part of the religious leadership of the day. Uh, the leadership consisted primarily, as I can tell by reading it, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, there was a ruling body called the Sanhedrin. And in some of our translations, it's just translated as council. But it's the word Sanhedrin in the underlying passage. And it speaks, I think it's 70 uh, religious leaders made up of Sadducees, which would be also with the high priests and the elders, and the Pharisees, which also had the scribes. And there were 70 of them, and I think maybe 71 total, because the, the high priest was the leader of that, if I remember it correctly. But Paul is a Pharisee, and a Pharisee gave strict adherence to the law of Moses, adding oral explanation on top of that. As an example, it's like one of the Ten Commandments, keep the Sabbath day, keep it holy. You shall do no work on the Sabbath day. Well, what does that mean? What constitutes work? Does that mean working in my field? Does it mean working around my house? How am I supposed to know? Well, there's these oral traditions that came, uh, oral teachings that came that would expound upon 
the law to try and explain, and these became binding. And so you wanted to keep not just the Ten Commandments and not just the laws that we see in the Torah, namely in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, but also the oral expansion of the law, if you will. It's referred to as the Mishnah. Let me read a little bit about the Mishnah. The Mishnah contains a written collection of traditional laws handed down orally from teacher to student. It was compiled across a period of about 335 years from 200 BC to 135 AD. The Mishnah is grouped into 63 sections that deal with all areas of Jewish life, legal, theological, social, and religious, as taught in the schools of Palestine. Soon after the Mishnah was compiled, it became known, check this out, as the iron pillar of the Torah, since it preserves the way a Jew can follow the Torah. So you get the idea there, the idea of being the iron pillar. This is what holds up the Torah, the Torah referring to the first five books of the Bible, the law, the law of Moses, primarily again in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But, but the Mishnah, the oral expounding about the laws is what holds up the law itself. So you can see how much weight the Jewish people put into, like Paul referred to it, the traditions of my fathers. And so a lot of weight was put into that. And so it would, it would kind of skew a little bit the meaning of what the law was. Now, it's funny, as you read on in Philippians chapter 3, you find that, that Paul comes to the conclusion that what things were gained to me, these I've counted loss for Christ, because he doesn't want to be found having his own righteousness according to the law. He wants to be found having the righteousness that's only through faith in Jesus Christ, because that's the only thing that's going to get him home. And that's the point, I think, that he's getting around to here. The Galatians are turning to a message, not a gospel, but a message that has faith in Jesus, but also the law of Moses. So it's trusting in Jesus, but it's also the works of the law in order to be saved. And this is what he's coming back to, to uh, deal with and to combat. So the point here in the background of Paul's life is that he was a legalist. He would be the first one to favor works, but he did not. Why? because he received this message of grace from the Lord Jesus Christ. It also says in Philippians chapter 3 that Paul's zeal was to the extent in Judaism, the faith of the Jewish people, his zeal was to the extent of persecuting the church. And that's what he references in verse 13 in our chapter. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure, and tried to destroy it. So he was the biggest enemy, as we read in the Bible, of the church. Again, persecuting beyond measure, trying to destroy it. As we read through the Bible, we, we see a number of passages where Paul is either trying to destroy the church or he's testifying after his conversion of what he had previously done. By the way, Paul's name originally, as we read in the Bible, is Saul. Saul of Tarsus. Saul was his Hebrew name. And again, it was the name of the first king of Israel. And his name means desired. So we start off by reading of him as Saul of Tarsus and the meaning of his name desired. It changes then to Paul, which is of Latin origin, and it means little. And to me, that speaks of humility. Yeah, as he's called Paul from that point on. But after Saul is giving consent to the death 
of the first martyr of the Christian church, Stephen. It says in Acts chapter 8, verse 3, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Can you imagine what that would be like? You've got the, the church that's just started. They're like, yay, we can, we can have eternal life. We just trust in Jesus. And then you have this guy who, again, he's like a leader getting authority from the chief priest to come in to the homes and drag out of there, not just men, but men and women and committing them to prison. And he wasn't Satisfied with just doing that in Jerusalem, he got letters to go into foreign cities, to go to Damascus, to do much the same thing. We read about that in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So same thing, but a zeal to travel out of the country and go find some more believers who are of the way. Isn't that kind of cool? It's like they used to refer to the church or believers as the way. And I think it comes from John 14, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So again, men and women, bind them, bring them back to Jerusalem. When Paul, after his conversion, is addressing the mob in Jerusalem, and this is where he's getting arrested, and he's getting arrested by his fellow countrymen that had much the same zeal that he once had. And so he's standing up and testifying before them, and he speaks of Christianity in Acts 22, verses 4 and 5, where he says, I persecuted this way to the death binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness, and all the council of the elders, from whom I also received letters to the brethren and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. And so you see him testifying after the fact. Again, and you get the, you get the harshness of it. It's not just that he's going... That's not right. You shouldn't believe that way. He's not doing that, is he? He's going and he's handcuffing them, putting them in chains, and he's dragging them back to stand trial and to face their destiny. Listen to what he says before King Agrippa. Again, this is after his conversion, but this is where he's testifying to his past. He said, this I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints... I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in every synagogue, and compelled them to blaspheme, and being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Man, that's serious stuff, isn't it? I mean, here he is, he's the persecution again, to the point of death, when they were put to death. So it's not like they're just in prison. They were being killed, weren't they? They were being killed and he's there casting his vote. Let them be put to death. This is one of the reasons why some people think he was a member of the Sanhedrin, this verse right here, where it speaks of him casting the vote to have the ability to be able to do that. But he was giving the hearty approval for the Christians to be put to death. And notice at the end of that section that he was exceedingly enraged against them. He had a zeal, didn't he? He had a zeal for God, 
but it was not according to knowledge. He was ignorant of what the truth really was. He would pay for the consequences. There would be consequences for what he had done. How many of you know that our sin is forgiven by Jesus, but we still remember, don't we? And that still can be a weight in our conscience. And it, can, and it can weigh upon us. And now Jesus has forgiven us, but we still have that thing hanging over our head, the thing that we've done in the past. And Paul was no different. He had that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says this, he goes, for I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. Undoubtedly, that thing hung over his head. Here he is, one out, preaching the gospel and everything, yet in the back of his mind, he knows that he put that person's mom to, to death, that person's dad he put to death and voted against them and so forth. And so undoubtedly, it was a heavy weight to carry. And so he refers to himself as the least and not worthy to be called an apostle. But then he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. <laughs> How many of you can say that? How many of you have a past that you wish was just gone? I mean, I think we all probably do, don't we? We all probably wish we had things in our past that we had never done and we, we keep remembering them and they come up. But like Paul says, by the grace, by the grace, the favor of God, I am what I am. Yeah, I am a sinner, but I'm saved by grace. Amen. And so he comes to that. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly then they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. And the, the idea is here, he's, he's saying, I labored more abundantly than they all, the other apostles. It's like once he got salvation, he did everything he could to build the church he once tried to destroy. But even then, he says, it's by God's grace. It's really not me. Even though I'm working so hard, it's God's grace that's working in me. Don't let your past hamstring you from running the race that God has set before you, okay? Leave it in the past, focus on the future, focus on the present, because God, I believe, as we'll see in just a moment, has a plan for every one of our lives. Verse 14, and I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my father's, but when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Separated from where? His mother's womb, from birth. From the very beginning, he was separated to be God's spokesman. But that really didn't happen until much later in his life, did it? It reminds me of what was said of Isaiah the prophet, what was said of Jeremiah the prophet, in Jeremiah 1.5, at, at his calling, God says to him, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Now, we know that God is omniscient. In other words, he knows everything. He knows the end from the beginning. So he, he knows what's going to take place in a person's life. But the point being is for Isaiah, for Jeremiah, for Paul the Apostle, I'm going to say for all of us, God has a plan. Do you believe that? I believe God has a plan for your life. And I believe that plan includes doing his will and being used by him and bringing honor and glory to his name. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship. 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, notice, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The Greek word for workmanship is poema. We get our word poem from that. It's like he is the author and we are the masterpiece that he's putting together. If I can use a different metaphor, he is the potter and we are the clay. And our part is to stay on the wheel. We so often want to jump off the wheel, but just stay on the wheel and allow him to mold you and make you into who he wants you to be. We all have plans. We all have desires in our life. But like I have said before, we have a plan for our life and God has a plan for our life and his plan is better than our plan. So let's do everything we can to seek the Lord for his plan for our life. Amen. And it's just beautiful to see what what God is doing in Paul's life. Again, called or separated from the very beginning, but then at a certain point in time, called through the grace to reveal his son in me, verse 16, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And he said, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Now, when Paul first got saved in Damascus, he immediately preached in the synagogues of Damascus. So as he's heading from Jerusalem up to Damascus, it's there that he gets saved. And then he goes into Damascus, begins to preach. But as we read right here, he then goes into Arabia. And as we'll see, he comes back into Damascus and then he will go down to Jerusalem. But a period of three years passes from his time in Damascus to Arabia, back to Damascus, and then back down to Jerusalem. What was taking place in those three years? How long was he in Arabia? How long was he in Damascus? We just get the total of of how long until he went to Jerusalem. Undoubtedly, he was preaching because Acts tells us he was preaching in the synagogues. But I kind of wonder and can't help but think that he's having some alone time. You know, he's letting the Lord lay a foundation in his life for the work that God has for him yet to come. Because Paul will go on three powerful missionary journeys, and he will write half of the New Testament. And there's a lot to be said for the foundational work that God does in each one of our lives, to spend the time with him so that he can grow us in our relationship with him, so that he can empower us with the knowledge, and probably more importantly, the heart for those that he wants to reach. So I encourage us once again to make sure we put high value on our time with the Lord, whether it's your morning devotions or during the day, to build that relationship that you have with the Lord, because it's like he's building and strengthening that foundation in our lives as we get prepared for the work that he has called us to. And so he, again, was in Damascus, then into Arabia, back to Damascus, and then on to Jerusalem. In verse 18, it says, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things which I write to you indeed before God, I do not lie. So again, coming back to the reality that 
He stated he didn't receive the gospel from man. He received it from Jesus. But here he's saying, you know, three years after I was saved, I, I did go to Jerusalem and I spent 15 years or 15 days. I'm sorry. I spent 15 days with Peter. You know what? It was rough when he went back to Jerusalem because when he was there three years earlier, what was he doing in Jerusalem? He was dragging people out of their homes and dragging them into prison and casting his vote against them and they're being put to death. In Acts chapter 9, verse 26, it says, and when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. You can't blame him. You know I mean? You just think he's undercover. I mean, he's acting like he's a believer. He's a wolf in sheep's clothing. He's coming in. He's trying to point out who the, who the leaders are here. It was actually Barnabas that ended up bridging the gap. Barnabas believed in him, and Barnabas is the one that was able to bring him before uh, the apostles and, and uh, just a few, as he mentions here, Peter, for a little bit of time. And he also mentions James, James, in verse 19. I saw none of the other apostles except James. Notice the Lord's brother. So this is not James of Peter, James, and John that we read about in the Gospels, the inner three. That James is the brother of John, the sons of Zebedee, and that James actually ends up getting put to death and recorded in Acts chapter 12. And then after that in the book of Acts, we read of another James that becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church, and it's this James right here. It's the Lord's brother, as it says here, probably more specifically the Lord's half-brother. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, it gives us the names of Jesus's brothers, Jesus, I'm sorry, James being one of them. The interesting thing about Jesus's brothers is John chapter seven tells us that they clearly did not believe in him to be the Messiah. In Acts chapter one, his brothers are there with the disciples, with the believers waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so the question is, how did they go from being unbelievers in John chapter 7 to being believers in Acts chapter 1? And I think the answer is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where it says that Jesus appeared to James after the resurrection. And can you imagine that? He sees his older brother. You're alive. You know, you're alive from the dead. And he became a believer. He became a believer and he ends up being a powerful leader in the Jerusalem church. And he also writes the biblical letter that bears his name, the book of James. And it starts off James, not I'm the brother of Jesus, but it starts off James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think Paul's point here in this autobiographical sketch is that the visit to Jerusalem was short. It was only 15 days. So it's not like he went there and did a crash course in seminary or anything to learn the gospel message. He just visited with the apostles, and then he moved on from there. In verse 21, it says, Afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. While Paul was in Jerusalem, again, many were afraid of him. But he also spoke courageously in the name of the Lord. And just like he wanted to kill the Christians, so his fellow countrymen want to kill the Christians and now he's one of those Christians. In Acts 9.29, it says of Paul, he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out 
to Tarsus. So Paul has come full circle. He was born in Tarsus. He was from Tarsus. He went to Jerusalem, was schooled at the feet of Gamaliel, and now he's back in Tarsus, and he will be there until Barnabas comes and brings him to Antioch. Because the gospel message is beginning to spread outside of Jerusalem, outside of Judea, and it's gone up to Antioch, and the church in Jerusalem hears that the gospel has made it to Antioch, so they dispatch Barnabas to go up there and to, to help the new believers that are up there. When Barnabas gets up to Antioch, he's so close to Tarsus, it's like, I'm going to go get Paul, and I'm going to bring him over here, and that's where that partnership begins for the two of them. By the way, it also says that they were first called, they were called Christians first, in Antioch. So that's kind of a, a neat little tidbit we find in the, in the Bible. Now verse 22, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but they were hearing only he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith, which he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God in me. Like I mentioned about his past, it was a big weight for him to carry. And it's causing the, the believers to just do a double take. I mean, this guy was trying to wipe us out and now he's trying to build this church tremendously. In Philippians chapter three, he says this, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Guys, in one sense, your past doesn't matter. In another sense, you want to be focused on what Jesus has done in your life, that he's made you a new creation in Christ. And your life as a changed believer brings glory to God. So try and leave that in the past. It's under the blood, amen, as a believer. Focus on the present. Keep your eyes on the future.